Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petro Nerds Podcast. This is episode 92 or 93. We'll decide uh, this weekend if I record another one. Um, and I am really pleased uh, to have a very uh, great guest today. Really pumped about this. Um, we've been talking about this for a while and making it happen. So today I have uh, Daniel Romito with uh, with Pickering Energy Partners um, as my guest today. So uh, Dan, Daniel, welcome welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast. It's just Dan. Yeah. I, pre- I appreciate the formality, but yeah, just Dan. That's cool. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for having me. I'm- yeah. Uh, just Dan. We'll, we'll, we'll keep it to Dan. Um, okay. So today it, it's Friday. It's August 25th, 2023. Um, Jerome Powell has spoke. Uh, we won't get, we can, we can talk about that if you want to talk about that. Um, but that was probably the biggest thing that I think in the news today, we have definitely seen pressure on oil prices. I certainly in this podcast, you know, want to talk about the market and the state of, you know, mm-hmm. oil prices and where they're at. Um, but there's a number of things we're going to talk about with you. And that's really, I think, uh, ESG um, and some things mm-hmm. in that sphere. Um, and listeners know that I, and you know, that I love to talk about ESG, probably in a little bit I, differently way than you do. Yeah, I, I, I can envision that we're going to have some disagreements on some things, but that's okay. Um, oh, yeah. Well, that'll be fun. That's good for li- it's good for listeners. Um, so we'll timestamp this with um, and not get into too much of this because I want to focus on on the conversation with you. Um, and I think listeners will have a lot. To, uh, will will really enjoy it. But WTI right now is seventy nine ninety six. Uh, Brent is eighty four sixty one. We have come off some of the lows we saw this week, but we've definitely seen some serious pressure. Um, and you know, I've been you know, telling clients and telling listeners this for a while. I don't see the this massive material upside in the second half that a lot of folks have been banking on. Not that it can't happen for numbers of different reasons, but that uh, it, it's really not a demand growth, demand led driven. And most of that has been on the back of serious, serious concerns with China, which I got into the last podcast. We can talk about a little bit of that as well. If you have thoughts, um, Henry Hub is at 255, seeing, still seeing pressure there. Um, Dutch TTF, we've lost some gains after this, uh, you know, potential Woodside um, stuff in Australia and the labor issues going on there, but it's at 1016. Mm-hmm. We've lost some gains. Copper, I've been throwing this new one out there because I think people really need to be paying attention to copper. This does get into the issue in the energy. Let's hear it. Well, uh-huh. copper prices are at 379, and I think that if you didn't yep. listen to the latest episode, I think that copper prices are, just like oil prices, are an ind- a future forward-looking indicator for the health of the economy. And they're so intrinsic within um, the hopes of the energy transition, but they're also intrinsic within just the fabric of most economies, especially right. the Chinese economy and emerging markets. Um, and so when we've seen the big ramp-up in copper prices that we saw the first part of, you know... It, post-2020 and the COVID boom and everything, and then we've come off that. So we can get into copper as well, but I think it's it's in this sluggish territory, and I think it's selling us something. And then, holy moly, um, and as a as a person, a young person, a homeowner, we should talk about this as well, but 30-year mortgage at 7.39%, which is That's just- insane. Uh, it's absolutely, absolutely insane. 10-year um, yield, if you guys have seen mortgages or yields this week, folks, it, they have been it's incredible. Depressing. Um, and I mean, actually, if you, if you have savings, I, I think th- there's a nice balance here because you're we're starting to finally get uh, rates that are not competitive well, with inflation, but they're you're getting to the point at least the the sticker price for inflation they are competing. But it's you know you can put your money and you know fixed assets and fixed income are now finally having you know rivaling the market, and so you can get four to five percent easy guaranteed money back um, with secure assets. So um, that's what's happening in the market right now. But this problem with the seven point three nine percent, you know, Jerome Powell didn't mention it, but he had a short fifteen minute speech in in Jackson Hole, Wyoming today, and he did you know he sounded pretty hawkish to me um yeah. he was probably a little more dovish i think in his overall deliverability but he was hawkish in his in his words of actually saying you know we have to fight inflation and um the stuff that we heard this week was a lot of a lot of folks coming out and and warning about inflation picking up in the second half of the year or spikes in it and i think that's and also uh credit worthiness and the massive amount of mm-hmm. debt we have in america um being a problem so i know i've, I've time stamped that and thrown a lot out there so any of these you want to uh you you're no, a, I mean, really quick, real quick on yeah. the on the mortgages, like m- mortgages that seven point four percent is absolutely insane, right? If if you think about what where mortgage rates were at this time last year, I think they were right around like three and a half, maybe four, and so for that mortgage rate to essentially double within a year, that is not a great sign. And I and I think your point on debt 
is absolutely spot on. I think what people fail to recognize is that credit card debt is variable. And with credit card debt, there was a story about it last week being at an all time high. It's like some ridiculous number in the trillions. What you're going to begin to see is this clamp down on the consumer. And it's a great segue into what's actually going on in the energy. Because what are we seeing? We're seeing gasoline prices rise. We're seeing commodity prices rise. We're seeing just the overall cost of living rise. And I mean, I have my theories and I'll have to put my tinfoil hat on um, and talk like conspiracy theory, Dan. Um, and But I'll, I'll, I'll save you that. We are in an inflationary environment and I just don't know why we don't come out and say it. And this whole notion of the soft landing, I, I, I think it would be better off just being very honest about the situation. Clearly, we can't do that, particularly going into an election year and where the primaries. But this this inflationary dynamic is going to be it, it's really going to be nasty next year. Right. I am I am sort of a pessimist. Um, usually I'm the optimist, but if you're looking at probability of recession, it's in the low seventies. Like this is going to happen and we need to prepare accordingly. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more in terms of definitely we're having a recession. I think actually half of the country is already more than the half of the U S is already in recession. Um, and I do think it's interesting that you, you just mentioned this and I, I think we will, we'll dive, we'll bring this back to energy because I don't think a lot of people appreciate, you know, what are the potential risks on for energy? And we're seeing this, I think, whether you're talking to service companies or ENPs, you know, the weight to this, I have people that direct message me all the time that tell me, you know, what they're seeing in the field and it's great. And I love spending time in the field, but we can, come back to that. But Larry Summers was just on, on, and he was talking on Bloomberg and he was talking about, um, you know, the Fed, Jerome Powell's remarks. And mm-hmm. I, he's been really critical of the Fed, you know, early on saying they, they weren't raising rates early enough. I was extremely critical from the very get go when we started seeing inflation rising and the Fed was behind the curve. Obviously the Fed has, has, has continued to raise rates. And I think what we heard from Jerome Powell was that we we're probably going to have to, with, there's a likelihood that we we're going to keep rates high. Um, and yeah. which is good because it means that they're not going to if they're at least maintaining these rates, um, it means that w- inflation is going to have to come down. And the problem right. is that it's going to have to be on the um, the employment side has to give. And nobody wants to admit this. So this recession that people right. are like, it's never going to happen. It's like, yes, when people start losing their jobs, that's when things really start breaking and slowing is that that's when the, the housing starts slowing. That's when people start having yeah. to move. That's when so we, we start having some real shifts. And I, I actually think that the energy industry um, is not quite uh, ready yet for, I'm no. not sure. I, I think the, the only gas industry is not ready to, they've gotten pretty comfortable, I think, with these 70s and, and low 80s oil <laughs> prices. And um, yeah. they don't want to really admit, you know, when they touch in the 70s or in March, we saw 69. And then, and they have all this, they just c- continue, most companies, I'm not saying everyone, but has a bullish sentiment. Um, and it's that the long-term drivers. And I think that we need to be thinking about, you know, the next two years and how they look because- yeah. If people are intelligent about this, and this is businesses that anybody that's touching energy and in, in and outside oil and gas, but especially if you're a service company, you really need to know what's going on in the space so that you can right. navigate it uh, because the next couple of years could look pretty rocky. Yeah, I almost view it as like this checkmark dynamic. I don't know what the official economic term is for like a checkmark looking uh, pattern on a, on a chart, but you're, I think you're spot on. Um, you know, over the next two years, three years will be rocky. But then if you're in energy over the long term, like this, this, this misguided perception that oil and gas is going away to me is it borders lot. It's so insane that it's almost hilarious, right? It, you know, if you're making the long eight to 10 year play, oil and gas is going to be here in perpetuity. And we're beginning to see that already where, you know, one of our PMs uh, in Sailing Stone had this amazing um, kind of line in, in their commentary They wrote, as spreadsheets move to shovels, the economic realities of the energy transition are actually kicking in, right? So once again, you know, the energy transition looks good and and the concept of of moving away from oil and gas looks good in spreadsheets and in Word documents. But then when you actually begin to employ those practices, there's a whole new set of economic realities that take hold where people are beginning to say, oh, wait maybe we've gone a little bit overboard. And we've definitely seen that, whether it's Germany, we're definitely seeing that. Um, we'll see that in the wintertime as well. Like this winter, I was just talking to somebody, I guess this winter is anticipated to be really, really nasty. So when in the two years, yeah, it will be dicey over the long term, like the next seven to 10 years. I mean, I couldn't be any more bullish on the energy sector. 
Yeah, and 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 this is great because um you know I think we uh we were arguing um when we yes. met at so so um Dan and I met in at this in, at the Oklahoma Petroleum Alliance meeting uh that's in Dallas and he was kind enough to to uh, hang out with me because I didn't know anyone there um so we became fast friends and then he gave a presentation really you know raw rawing ESG and I I wanted to argue with him about it quite a bit um so I think and that's why I think this is great because I uh, as we were talking before we pressed record. Forward. Um, some things I want to get into is that, you know, yep. these complexities that you're drawing with, with the issue, with the energy transition, and actually I think with fiscal spending. Um, and that's something I was going to mention is that at least Larry Summers brought it up was that, you know, what our Fed is not doing, and to your point on the political side, is not talking about the fiscal, the complications around yep. um, inflation right now in America. You, you hear it talked about in the UK. I mean, the Bank of England says, you know, uh, talks about government spending directly and how these are you know, these aims are at odds with what they're trying to do to cool inflation. And the UK has massive right. inflation right now and labor labor mm -hmm. cost inflation. And so we have incredibly high fiscal spending. The Biden administration yeah. has has spent like drunken sailors. You have a Democratic <laughs> Congress that has just went crazy. And we have so much more spending, so much larger entitlement programs than we've had in the past. And yeah. we did lead the world in food inflation, you know, in uh, early on, way, way before the war in mm -hmm. Ukraine, because we had increased entitlement programs and food stamps and things. And these are realities. Yeah. And then now with high interest rates, our debt is now our debt costs more. The interest on our debt costs more than our defense spending. And these are serious, serious consequences. And so then you roll in this idea. Then you talk about what you're bringing up on the energy transition is that, um, you know, I actually don't think we, we've we've materially moved into it. But I do think that, you know, uh, New York, there was an article from Politico um, that I'll be we can I'll be talking about more in detail in another podcast. But it's fascinating. Like New York, I did not realize had the commitments they have. They're like California. California has extended yeah. the life of a few gas fired power plants. But New York has stringent requirements to basically be cut their emissions by like 70 percent in by 2030. Um, so yeah. and the people are pushing back on this. And the Democrats are actually getting nervous in New York because they're realizing that these rising energy costs are going to, you know, maybe hurt them yeah. politically. And I think that, you know, there's something where we're seeing that, you know, we heard it, you're, it, oh, you're not, sorry, you're in Florida, not Texas, but we're hearing about it in Texas where, um, you know, the wind is not blowing because it's so damn hot. And so now yep. they're having issues with, with peak load issues um, and telling people mm -hmm. to use less power. So parts of this we're seeing in reality, but other parts it hasn't even gotten started yet in terms of the reality of really shoving this stuff into the grid. Yeah. So, I mean, if, if there's any model for how not to do things, it should be New York and California. And Absolutely. look, and I grew up I in Europe, right? And I grew up in Illinois, right? I'm, I'm a transplant to Florida, but I, I grew up and spent, you know, almost my entire adult life in Illinois. And I, I know this is going to sound harsh, but, you know, you sort of get what you vote for. So they continually put yeah. these people in that just don't understand what the hell they're doing. So I, I have a, you know, part of me is empathetic for for that, but another part of me, where you just keep voting in the same people and the same policies, so th that is essentially on you. And in, in fact, that's probably the root of the Great Migration, which is a conversation for another day. It's like living in Florida, where I live, nobody is from Florida. Where is everybody from? Everybody is from Illinois, yep. Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and California. That is it. And they all moved here for the same reason. It's just the policies in those respective states, energy included, just do not work. And the whole notion of these arbitrary targets, whether it's 2030 or 2050, like I know this is a family program, so I won't say the words that I want to say, but they're completely asinine, right? They're, they're just feel good fluff stories. And in many cases, all you are essentially doing, and I'm sure we're talking about this, is you're moving emissions from the back end to the front end. Right. There, there is nothing. There is no net zero economy. Net no, zero economy not. is not. you turn off the economy. That is net right. zero. Yep. And I was having this conversation earlier um, with someone I would I would probably say who leans left, um, reasonable person, smart person, but, you know, is under this impression that all oil and gas does is destroy everything. And once again, oil and gas is, you know, they they're not angels by any means, but neither is any sector. But in any case, my, my point to her was what do you need to get lithium cobalt copper nickel any sort of metals and mining input that is required in the energy transition you need big diesel machinery. and diesel machinery absolutely exactly yeah. you need diesel machinery and you need strip mining like and and you do it in places of the world that just don't have 
the same degree of focus on health and safety or regulations or emissions uh, that we, or even pollution. or emissions that we have. And, and, and clearly we'll talk about this more at, because you, you triggered me a little bit. You're like, I promote ESG kind of, kind of there's, there's parts of it I promote. Um, but this, this whole notion that we need to restrict access to capital, particularly in an environment where hurdle rates and the cost of capital is skyrocketing. That is, that is insane. That is not going to work. And unfortunately it's going to be the commoner you and me, right? Well, I, I don't make, you know, I don't make Trisha money, but the commoner in New York and in California, that's going to pay the price. And you're, you're, you're beginning to see that, right? If um, you see it in Germany, you have rolling blackouts in California, New York's policy is insane. Like their governor, uh, you know, conversation for another day, it just doesn't work. And, and I hope they come to their senses soon and at least have some sort of semblance of economic reality incorporated within their policymaking. Yeah, I mean, those are all really good points and fantastic comments. I think I, um, the one thing I'll, I, I, we can, you know, if we have time, get into the little, I think the COVID transplant, the reason I think it's interesting is because you are from Chicago and I know at that conference, mm-hmm. uh, the guy, Apocalypse Never, who is going to be on the podcast as well, yeah. you asked him a question about, you know, the state of Chicago. And I've, I have, all, I always think of a Chicago in the back of my mind because when people are from there and I, I lived, in a sub- suburb of Chicago when I was really little, between four and eight. And um, okay. uh, I haven't been there in a long time, but I mean, the stuff I hear now, and I've, I've traveled there uh, several yeah. years ago, stuff I hear now is absolutely horrible. And Ken Griffin, yeah. Griff- Griffin, Griffith, whatever, all these- Yeah, sit it out. Yeah, sit it out. They all left. They went to Florida, um, started shop yep. at the Four Seasons in Florida um, during COVID. <laughs> and everybody, you know, everybody like made this amazing COVID bubble for work, but everybody left. Yep. Uh, but now what you're starting to hear, and this is like real earnings calls, you know, whether it's it's Dick's Sporting Goods or it's Target earnings, yep. which I talk about, or it's, you know, Walmart has left Chicago and they won't say explicitly yep. why, but they've left Chicago because of crime. Everyone knows the, why. The, the crime is so high and the theft is so high. And people have to really, when we start talking about like, when we're talking about inflation intrinsic throughout the economy. It's like when you have this pushing labor cost inflation, when you have people on strike, when you have people stealing stuff. Um, last yeah. night I was out with a friend and, you know, I was at a restaurant and we were, uh, a homeless person walked into into this very nice restaurant and um it was it was fine but like i mean there were, everybody was kind of like what's going on here um and didn't know if it would, it was coming in going out it was a little confusing and it was late and um but it was kind of amazing because there were cops two cop cars at union station sitting right there and i thought yeah interesting that they're not sort of monitoring the situation and it wasn't like anything bad was going to happen but or, or it could have or like it's just the monitoring of the situation and i thought i was telling these guys that in colorado you know um and not directly this homeless person but i was telling these the the guys at the bar was like, you know, in Colorado, the prosecution is $1,500. I was like, so I can steal $1,500 of stuff from you right now. And um, technically, mm-hmm. you can't, like, you're probably not going to prosecute me right. because under $1,500. And that's where this theft is coming from. So it's like, and I think about Target and, and all these places, and it's, it, these cities are really, it's something, it's kind of like the fiscal side that, that Jerome Powell doesn't want to talk about how complicated it is. It's like, yeah. most people don't want to talk about, you know, these when we have crime in these cities and we have this rising theft, the cost of these economies is really huge. And the cost of businesses is really huge. You see in DC, um, this whole work from home doesn't, you know, the fact that people aren't in offices. I mean, the implications, all this are, have lots of, as me and you are working from home. Well, you know, I've always worked from home and certain people, certain people can, but I I mean, I think, I mean, you bring up a good point. So there's a couple things on that. I I think not working from home, by the way, it's the, it's the people traveling when they say they're working from home. That's causing inflation that's and that's causing labor prices to go down. So, yeah, that, that's true too. I, I did have a laugh when you gave your presentation. You're like those those work worker from homers. I was like, hey, that's yeah. me. Anyway, but you, I, I know what you're saying, and, and you are right. But no, I think you know what's what's irritating is it seems like we're in a time, and I don't know when it happened, but it seems like it happened around COVID, maybe a little bit earlier, where the label. The definition of the label become became much more important than like the underlying policy. So in other words, what it was called or how it was perceived high level almost trumps of what the, no no pun intended, of what the impending ripple effect is. Um, and, you know, once again, back back to, you know, kind of the theme of, of your podcast, like this notion of energy transition, the, the, the term energy transition is very misleading, Right transition would imply that you're moving from A to B and you're going to do it in like some sort of predefined timetable. And that's not what the energy transition is. The energy transition, at least the way that we think about it um, at our firm and how I think about it personally, is 
we are expanding optionality within the marketplace, right? You have this macro dynamic where the global consumer, regardless of what their familiarity with the energy space is, is high level wants this decarbonization movement to be employed. And so clearly the investment community has reacted, but I think they've gone way too overboard, i.e. BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard. You know, their, their policies are not realistic. They're, they, they touch, you know, or borderline insanity, if we're being honest. But the, the notion that it's we are transitioning from anything is incorrect. We are expanding optionality in the market because empirically, and we can get into the math, Oil and gas, at least for our lifetime and probably our kids' lifetime, is, is going to be an economic tenet of the global economy. It has to be. Um, if you look at population growth, developing countries are growing faster than developed nations. And part of their path to prosperity is they need reliable energy. And I know that becomes a little bit of a cliche, and I can't believe that becomes controversial. We talk to some people who are anti-oil and gas or more of the detractor crowd. Well, that, that's not about they. They claim that it's not a valid argument. I don't, and then, right. you know, well, they think draw. those countries are going to, the developing countries are, they're pushing them to leapfrog. And we can get into that whole thing because that's, that's another thing. So, sorry, keep going. But yeah, I mean, the point being is, you know, we, we, we've, we've, as a society or as a global economy, we, we've landed on this term energy transition. And it was almost doomed from the beginning, right? The label transition is 100%. is factually incorrect. It is it is expansion of optionality, right? We are in this technological inflection point to where we have better technology, not necessarily functional or scalable yet, where we can incorporate wind or we can incorporate solar or we can incorporate hydro, but we can't fully rely on it. Like the math just doesn't allow us to. And what we've done is we've allowed commoners, and, and I mean that respectful, like people outside of the industry, um, you know, to, to think that number one, oil and gas is inherently evil and is destroying everything. Um, you know, th there is a semblance of truth to that with various events that have taken place, but that doesn't mean you burn down the house, right? You, you, you improve and you hold people accountable. Um, but people... I always think it's hilarious. And I gave this story at the conference and I'm sure you've had this before. You know, if you ask someone what powers EVs, they're going to say batteries. And then you say, well, what powers batteries? They say electricity. And if you say, well, what powers electricity? They're like, what? Like electricity. Yeah. And it's like, and to yeah. us, it's so mind numbing, but I, that is, that is one of the foundational um, detriments to the energy transition perception. And, you know, I know we'll talk about this on, on the ESG front. You have just, different people defining ESG differently. And it's sort of what's going on with the energy transition. The massive hodgepodge. Exactly. It's like an eye of the beholder thing. It's like, I think ESG is this, so therefore we have to do this. And it's because there's not one unified um, common definition of what it is, it's becoming a total mess. Well, I mean, so you've said a lot there, which I think is, I mean, yep. it's great to hear, especially from your perspective. And we'll, we'll get into this a little bit deeper. I think there's a couple tracks I want to take this on the issue and the energy transition. Um, sure. You clearly need to listen to the previous podcast I did because I, I basically, I've, I've coined a phrase I'm going to keep using now, which is uh, throwing good money after bad energy. And I yeah. think that we, we have to, you know, when we talk about one, something I want to discuss with you is that a lot of people struggle with you know, what the energy transition is, where it's at in terms of the investment cycle and ESG. Mm -hmm. And when I talk to, whether I'm talking to pu public companies and CEOs or, or service companies or businesses or governments, you know, everybody has a different vantage point. And I mean, I was on a frack tour and I had a bunch of different people from DC uh, in, in, in May and they were like, oh, I think the ESG thing, you know, we don't need to work on ESG anymore in terms of the pushback. And I was like, we 100% <laughs> do because, you know, they, most companies, every company has a different view of what ESG is. And I get yeah. very frustrated from the, um, you know, the reality of one, is this even good energy? Cause it's a lot of this is not, you know, hydro, the, the on the hydro side, the technology technology is so far. I mean, hydro is one thing, sorry. It's the, um, hydrogen is a whole different thing. Yeah. Hydro's power. Hydrogen is so far out there. We're talking, you know, 50 years. And when people say this, when companies tell me like hydrogen, I'm like, 
really, you're a publicly traded company. I need a return if I'm investing in you yeah. sooner than 50 years from now. But you're investing in stuff that maybe, maybe have a 50 or, or 100 year return. And it's like, yeah. okay, but you don't, you can't tell me what those returns are going to be. And that there is a reality that in the energy transition, in terms of the big bulk themes, electric vehicles, solar and wind, you know, most of them do come almost exclusively come from China. And they're this forced labor component, which I, I'm keep bringing up and I don't think people really appreciate what it means when you have free labor. It means that you drop yeah. those costs really low. And something that we're seeing in Europe is the, the way they flood the market with these solar panels. They can do that and they have very, very cheap costs. You can have that mm -hmm. with um, with cheap and free to force labor. So not only right. do you have all these components, but you have pretty bad forms of energy. But, but by the time that solar panel is uh, taking the energy all the way to this light bulb above me, you know, we've lost a lot of energy and there's a lot of costs to that, not just from the cost from that crappy solar panel made with forced labor in the province of Xinjiang, um, made with coal, made with subsidized yeah. power, made with subsidized everything, um, made from the communist party, all, all these are bad things. But then as the country of America, we've had taxpayer dollars are paying for this. Yeah. We're paying for longer, you know, transmission lines, um, and putting a lot of money into this just to, just to use this solar to feel, to, pretend to feel good when it's not dropping emissions um, and it's really hurting the economies and society. So uh, there's a, so much complexity to, you know, throwing out this is the energy transition. And I think, I mean, you guys, you have the perspective from an investment side. I know that we argued about this, that in your presentation, you were talking about these, you know, to me, you were from promoting getting companies to sign on to ESG stuff and, and you know, getting their metrics and clarity. And the reason yeah. I, I want to talk about that and I, I push back on that is because I think that if we don't have anyone, if we don't have people like me that are out there talking about the realities of this and pushing back on that, what you have is the stock market and investors and everyone that's leaned mm -hmm. so far into the energy transition. And you got this massive hodgepodge, State Street, Vanguard, and BlackRock. They say ESG, but all they care about is the E. And they're not even doing anything on the E. They're complicit in human rights violations in China. And um, it's, mm -hmm. it's a joke. So when you don't have people talking about this and pushing back, we just allow it to run its course. And then it gets embedded and entrenched in the economy. And then the cost of capital and the ability for oil and gas companies and real energy to access funding, it, we're already seeing the limitations yeah. to that. And I think that's just, it's hugely problematic and that's inflationary. So, sorry, that was a long rant that- you No, so that. you might find this, you might find this very surprising. You talk way faster than I can write. So you you spit off a lot there. So let me let me take this one yeah, at take a time. Off, take whatever um, you want. Yeah, <laughs> just pick. It's like the Cheesecake Factory menu. Um, okay, so on the metric side, um, let me let me break out the argument as to why I feel companies should publicly disclose the material ESG related metrics um, okay. in in their either registration documents, actually not in the registration documents, but in in some sort of report. So, the overarching thesis that I personally have, along with our firm, is that oil and gas demand or the need for oil and gas is not going anywhere. The, the, the global energy mix, as we know, is 85% oil, gas, coal. In order for any developing country to pave a road towards prosperity, they need access to fossil fuels and hydrocarbons. That, that is an undeniable fact that I don't care who you are, I will debate till I'm blue in the face. So Not even prosperity, can, just to live. Just to live, right? But the, but the path towards pr prosperity, right? There's a direct correlation between standard of living increases and access to affordable, reliable yes. energy coming in the form of hydrocarbons. So on that fundamental premise, we, we can agree. Now, if you look at the, the providers of fossil fuels, you essentially have five countries. You have the United States, Canada, the UK, you have Iran, and let's just call it Russia, right? There's, there's other providers in there, but in, in terms of like top five, those, yep. Yep. Are, those are the top five, correct? Let's, let's say top six and we'll throw Saudi, yeah. the Saudis in there. So the, the thesis is if the world is going to need um, hydrocarbons, like that is an unequivocal fact. And the second component or the complementary component is, well, we're now in a global macro where the world is demanding decarbonization. Like we can agree on that. Like everybody wants to decarbonize. Um, even I, to a certain extent, think decarbonization is cool. I think there's a limit, right? We don't go all the way, but we try to get like some cool technology. In, in play. Um, so if, if the world needs fossil fuels and hydrocarbons, and if the world wants to decarbonize, well, let's analyze empirically 
who does that the best. So what we've looked at, along with other people, it's not like we have this novel analysis. We have our own spin on, on the analysis, but it's by no means original. We, we look at efficiency, right? So if you look at the GDP growth of the United States since 2000, you have on average a 2.7% annual growth rate of GDP, but you simultaneously done that using 40% less emissions. So emissions per capita over the last call it 23, 24 years has decreased 40%. Yep. So in other words, the United States has figured out how to decouple. Therefore, United States producers are the most efficient. We're the only country on the planet with that sort of disparity, that, that sort of divergence between GDP growth and emissions per capita. By shoving natural so, gas into the grid. Exactly. Like, And once again, that's a function of technological innovation, creating functional, I would argue that natural gas is probably a quote unquote green technology because it's replacing some form of coal, right? There's a substitution uh, factor there. But if, if, the other, if other countries are seeking hydrocarbons and fossil fuels, why would they go to Saudi Arabia or Iran or Russia, right? If, if they are serious about decarbonization, why wouldn't they go to the country that displays that divergence between production and emissions? And oh, by the way, there is no country on the planet that has the health and safety standards that we have, right? People always laugh when we're working with clients and I'll say, look, it's table stakes, but you need a human rights policy. You need a anti-child slavery cross. And like, what are you talking about? That's why would we ever do that? It's completely against the law. I'm like, we take for granted in the United States that we just don't do that. You know, you pointed out in China that the reason labor is so cheap is because it's usually forced labor. And, it, so, and increasingly uh, in the increasingly in the sector. But why, I guess my, my question here is that, you know, to you is that, and I, I think Chris Wright has done a really good job bringing this stuff up about the question of, it's not, a, what if it's not about carbon? And the reason I say, yeah. you know, we were talking about the fiscal complexities and Jerome Powell and everything. Look, this sure. is a, this has become increasingly political and we have to, as yeah. folks who analyze the space, understand how much money and government spending and crap you throw under this and how many people have gotten very rich on very crappy yeah. forms of energy, low BTU content energy, yeah. lots of money is being thrown at this. Now, entities that trade and move stuff, they make money no matter what. So, you know, Blackhawk yep. State Street, you know, anybody who's doing this stuff, they're making money on the moves. Um, and people will make money on that. Now we'll get into, I would like to ask, you know, so where just, just, state. just real quick too, because yeah. you have, you, you bring up some good points, but um, from that standpoint, I disagree with Chris Wright slightly. Um, you know, when you say it has become political, first of all, I completely agree with you, but that would also imply that there's an emotional component to this argument, which means it is very hard to sway somebody's emotions. In other words, facts don't sway emotions what what this is becoming because it's been politicized is a battle of the spectrums of opposite ends of the spectrum so the, the barbell effect right the extreme over here and the extreme over there and they're just butting heads what i feel the energy space should be doing is battling for the minds of the pragmatic middle people are like hey i i don't know what flowback means and i sure as hell don't understand the intricacies of energy. I don't even know when I flip on the lights, which why, why the light goes on. And the way that you appeal to those people is showcasing them empirically and objectively that this, this company, company XYZ, whatever it may be, they have decreasing methane intensity. They have decreasing scope one. They have a health and safety track record that is impeccable. They would otherwise not know that because the narrative has been hijacked and is dominated by individuals who just want to see fossil fuel divestment. You cannot convince them otherwise. And so when you talk about this political thing, I agree with you and it's irritating, but the, the fact that we combat these things emotionally, like that has gotten the energy space nowhere. Like that has gotten us absolutely no ground. Yes. But, and, and I, I, I don't disagree that that's, that has maybe gotten nowhere, but it. When we say like this isn't about carbon, and that's why I say we have to be very careful with that of like, look, Colorado is 0.3% of global emissions. So we can stop yeah. living and breathing as humans and wipe Colorado off the planet and 
-hmm. we wouldn't be a drop in the global CO2 emissions bucket. So we've got to have a reality check in terms of what the hell are we doing, murdering economies and people and hurting people's lives. And and mm -hmm. when you talk about the people in the middle, most people are most pragmatic about money. And the reality of the situation yeah. we have is that this stuff is really expensive and it costs a, mm -hmm. this, the policies are really expensive. The implementation that they're shoving through and forcing it, forcing renewable energy into grids that it doesn't give you yeah. baseload power and is not reliable. Not even before people say, well, it's just not ready. It's an ACE technology. It's not even that. It's pretty bad forms yeah. of energy you're forcing into grids. I think it's interesting you mentioned the the um, you know, the methane and the scope one. You're talking about the battle of the middle and the person that you just said about electricity and where it comes from. It's like they don't know what methane and scope one is. I'm sorry. I don't think Well, yeah, I mean you're sort like, of beating me you're you're beating me to the punch. Like I think so once again, when when Chris, for example, I'm not picking on Chris, obviously he's incredibly accomplished and I have a lot of respect for the guy, but you know, just because he's sort of on the front line, so to speak, what I think he falls short of doing is he goes from A to D, right? There's there's this massive educational curve that exists in the marketplace that just takes for granted what their access to energy actually looks like. And I think there has to be a better concerted effort on behalf of the energy sector in its entirety. And once again, I, I, to a certain extent, I realize that's a little bit naive and aspirational. But if I go to someone and say, okay, if I go to any person on the street and, and, and I say, tell me about Apple, like they're going to, they're going to flash mm -hmm. their iPhone, right? If, if I go to anybody off the street and I say, tell me about Exxon, I would probably bet my house that they would give some sort of like snarky comment of like, Ugh, right. You know, but and once again, Exxon's no angel and you know, there's a string of them that are similar. Um, but I promise you that people wouldn't realize that what was it? 40% of VC funding for green technologies last year came, came from big oil, right? They are trying to diversify right. Right. their book. And I think as a society, we've grown impatient, but back to your point on capital discipline, be, the, the great irony of this whole thing is the, the, the ESG movement, like the conventional ESG divestment crowd, I'm sort of lumping them in one general category has created an environment where, as we all know, access to capital is contracting. And so in order to maintain access to capital, most energy companies say we have to go back to basics and institute a distinct level of capital discipline so we earn a return, so we don't lose out on the investors that actually like us, right? We don't want to piss them off. Forget about expanding pools of capital. We, we can talk about that. And that inevitably delays the quote energy transition. So this this whole notion that you know you 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 divest or you constrict access to capital that's just delaying the ability for companies to invest in pretty cool R and D or allocate capex to retrofitting assets that were otherwise let's just call it dirty or or un, underperforming. So I, I don't think the energy space appreciates that number one, regardless of what we think. They're 5% of the S&P. The other 95% of the S&P 500 has been speaking this vernacular and this particular vocabulary for over a decade. So when the 5% says we're not doing this and we're not doing this because of economic reasons or you know the fact necessity or an economic tenant, I'm sorry, that looks weird to the 95%. Like we should be as corny as it sounds at least attempting to bridge the gap between what that other world likes and says and views and how we go about our business. So that's my I rant mean, for the day. No, those, those, that's a good <laughs> rant. And I mean, I, uh, we, there's pieces of that. I think we agree and disagree with. I think that uh, you bring something up great in all of that. And I love that you brought this back to access to capital. Cause that's where I wanted to go. I want to, I want to yep. clarify before we close this podcast, we're already almost 40 minutes, but I want to, you know, really know, clarify where ESG is now, you know, where's the state yeah. of like, so where is it in terms of, you know, the actual, you know, the money and cause you hear a lot of yeah. like, oh, money's pulling out. People people ha are pulling out of the ESG space. Money the, is not pulling. So per no, perspective, hold, 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 like go on, like, go on, continue. In terms of the fanfare, in terms of like funds and yeah. stuff throwing at this. And look, when I hear ESG money going or like, this is ESG, it's like Tesla. Okay. When I, it's like big EV companies and, or big, you know, Chinese uh, EV companies, which to me, that's just appalling that that's ESG. Tesla's not but, an ESG company. Right, but <laughs> that's where on. money, that's where funds go. So, um, and then in terms of, you know, you do hear, I, I know 
large hedge fund managers that have pulled out and say like th these are not yeah. money making plays. So there's a question mm -hmm. there. I, I do want to talk about the access to capital because we know that yeah. these uh, the pressure on the space and the way that people talk about the energy transition and ESG, whether that's any talking heads on TV on, when you're watching the stock mm -hmm. market, it is anti and I don't call them fossil fuels. It is anti crude oil, natural gas and coal. And so it influences the retail investor and the generalist investor. Sure. And I think the role for education is huge. And I always say this of yeah. like, you know, and, and lots of folks, you know, me and CEOs and people in the business, we, we, we do argue with the, what, how do you educate people and what's the role of it? And yeah. I always come back to, there's a role to educate the investors. There's a role to educate your shareholders. Yeah. There's a role to educate people. There's a role to educate, like, and when I know this, because almost every single Uber driver I have talks to me and they ask me about energy and they become a Petronas podcast listener and they, they genuinely <laughs> care. And they, uh, they yep. don't necessarily agree with me, but they care. They want to know about what fracking is, how it works, and if it's bad, is it yeah. not bad? And when I, when I have the balls to push back and say, hey, um, I, I disagree with this, or I hear something that they're yeah. playing, I'm like, you know, that's completely incorrect. And they're like, what? And then they ask, like, oh, you know about this, and we talk about it. But I think the education piece, you know, for public companies, and I've been on this for a while, but I think it is really serious. It's something I mentioned in that presentation um, in Dallas was that, look, you do have CEOs where their pay is being tied to ESG metrics. And I think that's important sure. to understand um, because, again, ESG is not super clarified. And as a, as a, when we're investing, it's not like we have perfect standardized metrics. I don't necessarily think mm -hmm. I don't want them. But then we have uh, companies that are torn. They have to actually produce oil and gas. That's how they make money, oil and gas companies. Well, yep. by and large, that's how they're making their money. And $80 oil I, I think you should be producing oil and gas, but they're pushed. Yes. You know, there's lots of complexities there and ESG is a component of that. And then your, your investor, your retail investor and that generalist investor is confused in terms of the narrative yep. the oil companies are saying, which is talking about the energy transition so much that they, should they be investing? In, I mean, basically the oil companies are helping tell the story that we're, oil's not gonna be around in 10 years. And so why would you have this yeah. in a long, so we've gotten to this 10 year psyche and we have oil companies yeah. talking about their 10 year, you know, I'm not gonna list the names, but there's plenty of oil companies out there that are public that have been saying for 15 yes. years about their 10 years of inventory. So every year they have another, yeah. this other inventory. So I just think like that in terms of the education in the investor space, you know, and we know that we know from the private side and private equity that even they are being impacted by their access to capital because the hesitancy to invest in oil and gas is very is very strong. Makes me think that there's super big opportunities for other funding to come into the space, different underwriting, which I would hands up. I'm interested in that. Um, and then, you know, so those are my three quote, you know, talk about the education yeah, yeah. piece, what you think, what, and I want to discuss the access to capital and, and where is, maybe we'll start here. Just where is the state of ESG in terms of, you know, you got, you're helping companies put these metrics out, but like, where are people? Um, I think it's not very clear right now. And Partly yeah. that's because where the stock market is and what's happening in the economy and, you know, interest rates going up, people are focused on that. But if, or if just because so there's a couple of different things. Day, yeah. Like, I mean, look, I know I know we're 40 minutes in. This would take, an, you know, another 80 minutes. So I'll, I'll break it down high level and once again, push push back or let me know if I'm if I'm on track here. Um, at the end of the day, return matters. You have to have ROI. You have to have financial performance in place. But particularly with energy and to a certain extent, but to a lesser extent um, with other sectors, portfolio eligibility really has been a, a two-part process where before it was a one-part process. The one part in the day was I've done the underlying work. I've spoken with management. I've gone to site visits. I've crunched the numbers. I've done everything associated with very thoughtful, thorough analysis, and I'm ready to invest. Now, unfortunately, whatever we think, there's this dynamic where you go through that first part, but the second part is essentially a check the box, where if I am not providing that investor with a set of non-fundamental data points, whether I deem them material or not, I don't put them in a position to check the box, which does impact eligibility. Now, of course, there's exceptions here and there, but generally speaking, there's this added layer of eligibility that is predominantly, let's call it what it is, a checkboxing exercise, but it has to relate to ESG data. The other component is you have in the publicly traded markets, rating agencies like MSCI and Sustainalytics and ISS pump incredibly poor data into the marketplace. 
MSCI's data is so poor, it is egregious. And I will love to debate them. They will never do it because they know their methodology is flawed. We've gone through it. But they have maintained distinct influence over index and ETF eligibility. And then whatever we think about ESG in its entirety, you have to be a realist and say, or at least acknowledge, the regulatory environment has now implemented this within its bloodstream. This is part of their DNA. And the analogy that I made during the conference is, if you want me to see me lose my mind, like what will we bring up? Taxes, right? I think taxes suck. I think it's stupid. I think the way that they determine is absolutely insane. I think it's just, frankly, robbery, and I could go on for days. But you know what I do every April 15th? I shut up and pay my taxes, right? And, and of course, I complain. And I'll have a couple adult beverages, but I still pay them. It's very analogous to the ESG world is most of this stuff is ridiculous. Like we have this tagline that only 25% matters, but we want to focus on 100% of our time on that 25%. It doesn't matter what we think for the time being, right? To to separate, I don't want to do this, um, that's no longer an option because the Federal Reserve is implementing it. The U.S. Department of Treasury is implementing it. Okay, so the National Association where- of Insurance Commissioners is implementing it. It is a this- regulatory fight. And you brought you brought this up, and the only reason I need to, I want to interrupt and ask yeah. this is because so this yeah. is critical, and it's it's everybody talks about this piece, but then they don't go further. So that's where my pushback is: of why okay. why can't we do more? And and we I think everyone needs to be doing more in, to, yeah. in terms of educating and pushing back on that because we have allowed a system, we've allowed this to be shoved down top down from London and New York and European policies mm-hmm. to be pushed on America where it doesn't work. And you're shoving this stuff through that. Yes, I, I understand that you, you're the compliance mechanisms and the, the need to check boxes mm-hmm. one for, for just ticking the boxes for if you're private to um, if you're public on the rating side and getting into certain things. But I think there's a massive need to educate you know, those portfolio managers in terms of the long only. So I think there's a massive need for publicly traded companies to be more vocal yep. about uh, talking about their business and why it's positive. And then we need to figure out how do we technically push back on all those things that are being shoved through um, very yep. inappropriately in terms of a, from a you know, business system and a financial system. How do we educate and push back on that? Is there a way to do that? Yeah, so I think we, I think where we, so I agree with you. I think where we disagree is like the methodology or the strategy on that. My, my, I'm under the mindset that beat them at their own game, right? The, that crowd, like whoever, whatever you want to label them has, has won the battle in terms of what is that accepted questionnaire. Like there's no turning back energy. I'm lumping myself in that. We lost that battle. Like it is pointless to fight. Um, It is a waste of effort. The reason why I push promoting non-fundamental data points that are material, like that's the caveat material to valuation premium is you are taking their language, their infrastructure, their perspective, and you're shoving it back and saying, look how this is trending, right? Look how this is trending relative to the globe. The, and, you know, and the part that gets held up is, you know, there, there is this misnomer in the market that you just don't need oil and gas. So frankly, that's where the educational part comes into play. Right. But once you can get that across that respective finish line, then the argument is like, well, who does this the best? Well, even if you do it the best, what is the best form of education? What is the, what is the language? What is, what is the vocabulary that any, everyone universally agrees? It's data and it's trend, right? It is data and trend. The, the other problem, and you'll laugh, um, and I'm probably going to get hate mail from engineers. When I talk to an engineer about like, all right, man, give me the spiel. Like, what do you do? I get a dissertation of a bunch of engineering jargon that I have no idea what the what the hell they're talking about. Almost, almost dropped one there. Um, you know, we, we see this in the methane world. It's like you have the methane tax um, from the inflation reduction act, which doesn't reduce inflation at all. Different yep. conversation had to get that in there. But when you talk to these companies, for example, of like, you know, what do you do? How much does it cost? And what am I going to get out of this? There isn't one that I've spoken to yet. Now they're getting better that can just give me the five bullet points. I get a 20 minute dissertation on the engineering and the science and the technology. And it's like, bro, I don't understand a thing you're saying. How in God's name is anyone in the generalist community going to understand that? And once again, we, 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 we 
push and we promote energy related considerations, but we do it in a vocabulary that just doesn't resonate with the general mass. But what does resonate, in my opinion, is you can showcase the metrics that are required, assuming they're material to your business, required from the outside world, and showcase how they're trending. Like if they're trending in the right way, and they're showing the right trend, or excuse me, and they're showing a positive trend, what are you going to argue with? So, but right? is, that, argue with? is that working? And this is where we'll, we'll bring this on the access capital. So clearly I'll have you back on the podcast yeah. and we will, um, you know, we'll, <laughs> we'll just talk about m- many, many other things because this is your yeah. co-host. Um, but so is that working? I guess my, my question, and I, you know, I have a lot of pushback because I think that it, not to what you're saying directly, but I think in yeah. terms of how we, as, uh, as especially just from a business standpoint and understanding money yeah. and metrics and everything, we're on the education space, but like, is these companies yeah. that you've helped when they're, when you're, they're hitting the metric, yeah. is that materially impacting their, so they hit the metrics and then you showcase all this stuff to me, w- yeah. they're probably in the near term, there's some help. I don't know if they're better access to capital funding, et cetera. I don't know what, what that looks like. So that's the question for you. But in the long term, I think in the medium term, I think if you give a mouse a cookie, they're going to want a glass of milk. And I think we do have to be yep. careful about, you know, how far we push this. And this well, is we're, a, we're saying, two, di- we're saying two different things. We're saying two different things, right? You are talking from a policy, right? I think you're right. Like this administration, and I have countless examples, has incorporated so much bureaucratic bullshit red tape into the mix there's three climate focus committees just in the Federal Reserve. Three climate focus yep. committees. You have, I, mean, I wrote I've, them down. I've this for years. Yeah. You have the Federal Supervision or the, the Supervision Climate Committee, the Financial Stability Climate Committee. You have the Federal Stability Oversight Committee on Climate. And these are massive committees and they have to justify what they do. And what do they do? They justify their existence by just layering on yep. added disclosure and policy. So we agree to an extent, but I think where you're entering is bad policy set by politicians who just don't know what the hell they're doing in the first place. They're lifelong bureaucrats. And we could talk about term limits and age limits. No, but I'm also saying that those people like Janet Yellen and the SEC and the SEC, you know, proposal for climate change that mentioned scope three emissions 300 and sometimes these are serious things. But if, if we don't, you know, if people like it, folks in your space are, if we're not actively talking to folks about this, of saying this can't, these can't be implemented because they would devastate the U S economy and make us uncompetitive on so many levels. I'm just saying, so how do you, how are you, uh, with the stuff that you're doing and that stuff, and because you're, you're trying to hit it, but you've got a push pull here. How do you guys address that? How are you? And maybe that's more, I don't know if you guys directly as a company, but are you addressing that? Is there a way to? Yeah. We, so we wrote, I mean, I personally wrote as a representative um, of, of Pickering energy partners, a 15 page rebuttal letter against the SEC climate disclosure mandate. I think every part of that respective proposal is insane. I, I think, once again, a bunch of bureaucrats who had no idea what the hell they were talking about huddled in a room and wrote down stuff that made them feel good. There was no underlying analysis on that. And I've had this debate with people who are very pro SEC, even clients who are very pro scope through disclosure. I'm like, the day that someone showcases to me the mathematical correlation between scope three disclosure and valuation premium, I will be convinced. I will shut my mouth. I will say, you win. You're right. I'm wrong. You're smart. I'm stupid. And that will be that. The math on climate-related metrics correlated to financial performance is shaky at best. Now, once again, without, it's and once again, I, I'm a dropout, granted, but I, I, I was working on my master's in mathematics from the University of Chicago because I was just going down the rabbit hole of trying to figure out how do you quantify qualitative data. Like, once again, conversation over drinks for another day, way too boring. But every, every analysis I've seen where ESG-related disclosure impacts valuation, totally false, no backing, shaky at best. Now, the analysis on ESG-related disclosure broadening access to capital and portfolio eligibility, that is a real thing. So the analogy that I like to make is, you know, ESG disclosure for material, non-fundamental data points essentially gets you an invitation to the party. Like now it's up to you to go to the party and find you know, the significant other to get the dance. Like that's on you. 
And that comes in the form of financial performance and sound strategy and management pedigree and all that. Um, but there is no, you know, I, I say this cliche, there is no magical pool of capital at the end of the ESG rainbow. It is an eligibility thing. Yep. And that eligibility either comes in the form of investor requirements because they're on the hook to provide certain data points to their respective investors, or it's from the regulatory perspective, which to your point, we've allowed policymakers, very bad policymakers to hijack um, certain energy related considerations and just make terrible decisions. The SEC climate disclosure mandate is insane. The sustainable finance disclosure regulation out of Europe, parts of it are great, but it's mostly insane. Uh, State Bill 253 out of California or State Bill 261 out of California, which is requiring scope three transparency for, I think it's for over a billion in revenue. Like once again, no one's going to do business in California. Uh, So I, I, I'm not being sensitive. Maybe I'm being a little bit sensitive, but you know, I, I, I think where we disagree is I feel that we can beat them at their own game. And I feel there is something you said for just showing the prowess of the U S energy space quantitatively, because the dirty little secret is we already know we do it the best. And when I say the best, I'm, I'm speaking empirically. Yes. But, and I, 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 I'm, I'm so hesitant with that because I spend so much, like when you're spending time with it, it's, it's all convoluted, right? The, the policies and sure. the implementation and this, and these metrics and things that people have to hit. Um, and I, it is impacting, you know, I do want to bring this home on and we'll, we probably have to yeah. move or do another podcast on access to capital, but it is impacting, it's materially impacting access to capital. And the reason yeah. I, str- I struggle with this of like, okay, well, we've hit all this metrics and we've proven we're the best. We know this, we, we do have rule of law. We have the strongest um, air emission standards in the entire world in the U.S. We always have. Way before yeah. the green craziness yeah. and everything, we had that. And so if you want to, you know, produce a molecule of oil and gas in the cleanest rule of law form without forced labor and everything, you would do it in democratic countries like America. But the movement sure. is against that. And so the push is yeah. against that. And this this administration, those on the financial side, lots of folks don't want that. So they've, they're okay divesting in oil and gas. The problem is within publicly traded oil and gas companies – they make their money by drilling for oil and gas. They put billions yep. of dollars. Exxon has put billions of dollars into the um, energy transition, renewable type stuff, right? And they keep increasing mm-hmm. that, probably for the ability to, to play at the table and all these metrics that you're thinking. However, the return on that is we start having fiduciary responsibilities, I think, here in terms of how we're telling oh, people the street about what are these returns going to be. And then you have a problem where oil prices have been relatively high for the last couple of years yeah. when if oil prices were $50 a barrel, I believe the ESG raw raw is going to decline because the returns are, you can't be saying See, I'm going to, I'm going to invest in crappy forms of energy and, and not give you a return for 10 years. I, I think I disagree with out, you there real quick. By higher just, oil prices. Just, yeah, go ahead. Just real quick. I, I, would, I would push back on that because our friends at BlackRock state street and Vanguard own oh, 35, 36% of the S and P right. I know uh, the, your frenemies at the big three. And once again, index investors, I actually think we're talking about a broader structural problem in the markets. Like we have swung the pendulum way too far in favor of passive funds, index funds. There is no underlying scrutiny of the fundamentals or the strategy or the pedigree or, you know, forward direction of index funds. It's a bunch of bureaucratic, let's just call it, let's just call it what it is. Um, It is a bunch of individuals at those respective investors, in my opinion, more geared on engineering social policy via corporate um, strategy. Yep. And, and and because they have such immense concentration of power, what they say in most cases goes like you're seeing this in the financial space. Like this is another conversation that we didn't even touch upon. But when you're seeing companies like Chubb institute a methane mitigation policy within their insurance underwriting, that is in large part a function of the activism, the shareholder activism yes. that they're experiencing with their shareholders, which is driven by a group called As You Sow, which bought like a thousand dollars worth of shares. Right. And right? This, is but, same, this is the same for like the um, all the green stuff we saw, all the activist investor yeah. stuff we saw with the big with with Exxon Chevron and, and Shell yeah. um, and engine number one. But I, w- let's take this back. So the access capital, and this is where I yeah. we are seeing a material impact. This has 
come down the pipeline through all these things in mm -hmm. less funds, which is what the, all these activists mm -hmm. and all these folks intended, less funds yeah. available, less people, less general investor, less uh, retail investor in the oil and gas space, and yeah. less access to capital, whether you're public or private, to actually drill for oil and gas. And that has a mm -hmm. material consequences that it helps your, if you're an oil company, that's why you're selling your long story of like, hey, we're, we're bullish on oil and gas long term because you, you feel mm -hmm. comfortable in the prices, but less funding is really problematic. And I, I get folks on the podcast yeah. that ask this a lot of, hey, you know, long as the policy is really bad, actually it's good for oil prices. And truthfully it is, but like you want to be in yeah. an environment where you can drill and invest and have, a, you know, a clear regulations and rule of all, all these things. And so I think the access to capital piece is something that really makes me anxious now, especially when you yeah. hear, like we, we heard Chris Atherton with EnergyNet and we heard, uh, you know, NGP at that conference as well, talking about how, you know, they, they would love to be putting, seeing more money go to it, but NGP has their, their fund is dwindled down in terms of the money. Well, I also think, I mean, so look, I, I agree with all that, but so there's not a problem. There, it's a total problem. And I'll give you an example. Like I teach at a university um, and I know many universities where their respective endowment has divested. They've instituted yep. a divestment policy. And when you talk to the CIOs, or if you talk to you know, um, the board, or you, you talk to the chancellor, they will say something along the lines of, well, our students really pressured us to do this. Yep, and you hear that my everywhere. response, once again, you're a family program, so I can't say the choice words that I would say. Um, but it is something along the lines of you're out of your damn mind. And when you talk about just having some sort of for just some guts and once again family program i get it um yeah sorry I used who the other cares word, what, but yeah who, yeah who, who cares what the students say like what's hilarious is you know the students that are utilizing the the red flippy cups on friday and saturday night yes. petroleum based are the yep. same ones who like divest from oil and gas well guess what junior there's no flippy cup game friday and saturday night well, um, that's and you're gonna freeze your ass off in the winter there's where um, some education so, comes into it and allowing people to like, allowing people to have a voice that push back and, you know, talk. Yeah. I mean, I think it is really well, important. Well, I mean, part of it is like, we, we've entered this part, this, this time in society where it's like, you know, we want to make everybody happy and like, sorry, in a capitalist society that just doesn't happen. It sucks. It's unfortunate. But the whole, the great thing about capitalism is you have winners and losers and hopefully the losers learn from their mistakes and they eventually become winners. Like that is, that is essentially the, 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 the rotation, if you will. And as it relates to energy, we've gotten so caught up in making people feel good. Like we're doing it to their detriment, right? We're, we're doing it to the, to the detriment of their long-term prosperity. You know, it's, it's gotta suck being a student coming out of college right now. Can you imagine coming out of college or being new in the job force and your mortgage rate is, seven and a half percent and the the interest rate on your credit card is 31 percent and auto loan is 12 percent and you know no disrespect to any hyundai owners out there but a hyundai sonata is like 60 grand like what the hell man like but those have all implications from just bad policy and i think energy is in part to blame right if we're being honest with ourselves because they've just let it happen they're like we do our thing we do what we do. You need us. We don't have to necessarily participate. And that that backfired. And now we're playing catch up. The energy space is playing catch up. And I feel back to access to capital, it probably takes a technology company three or four meetings to get an investment. It's going to take an energy company eight or nine meetings. It's going to take longer. There's more work involved. It's more of a grind. Um, it can be done, but you know, we, we have to stop playing this stupid game where it's like, they're wrong. I'm right. They're wrong. I'm not doing the data. I'm not doing the submission and I'm not imitating anyone, but um, it's like, no, get the data, figure out where you're vulnerable preemptively fix it. And then once you do go to the street and brag about it, like, just don't keep quiet. Like I, I, I don't understand that philosophy, shove so it in their face. I think we can, we can, we can agree that, I mean, I think data and knowledge is power. And so, um, you know, you got to play the game to be in the game. Um, and I do get that point. We, we went from uh, ESG to capitalism and that's a whole nother, whole nother podcast, <laughs> but I, we're at the post yep. one hour mark. So we do need to close. Yep. But I think that I've one, it's been an absolute pleasure. I think you're, um, yeah, thank you. you know, we can continue to debate and talk. And um, I think these are all really important, but you're right about the industry. You know, we just take it from a little bit different vantage point. I think, you know, I'm third generation oil and gas um, mm -hmm. and, you know, 
and a huge advocate of the industry, largely for, you know, there's, I'll call it the industry left, right, and center when they make mistakes. Yeah. But the, and the industry has, and to me, is making a huge mistake now by the way they have leaned into net zero 2050, the way they have leaned into yeah. the energy transition, and the inability for them to articulate the positives about the oil and gas industry. We actually have the moral high ground now, and it's not being taken. And so in that battle of, you know, winning hearts and minds and, and you know, providing people low-cost energy, it, the industry yeah. just isn't even, one, they were bad. The industry has always been duck and cover. And so to your point yeah. about, like, the students, I completely agree. And I got to say that when I, I'm out there talking and having – you know, when I'm meeting with CEOs and when I'm talking with folks all the time, the one thing I always hear from people is, wow, you push back on everything and you're not afraid to. And I think I am I am not willing to hurt. Like, I'm sorry if your feelings get yeah. hurt. You know, it's feelings like yeah. I'm still going to be friends with you. I don't mind if you disagree with me, but I think we need to get a lot more comfortable about being uncomfortable. And um, well, we I, I think to a certain extent, yes. And by the way, I'm not at all shocked that you push back on stuff. Wow. Shocker of the shocker of the hour. Lovingly. Um, I, I disagree a little bit. I, I, I definitely agreed to the point of like making things uncomfortable in the sense of like debating it. But I also think there has to be a concerted effort to just stop pandering to your respective echo chamber and both oh, sides are guilty of it. I, I right? agree the, with the that. Echo and chamber I think pandering is driving me nuts. It's like, here's the data, the here's how it's trending. Right. End of story, take it or leave it. You can't argue with it. If you don't like it, you know, tough. It, the numbers are the numbers. The math is the math. The trend is the trend. Right. End of story. So we have to do, people like you and I and the industry have to do a better job of figuring out where, how we actually move the needle. And I don't think we've done yeah. that. So I think that's a good point to, to close on because we're out of our yes. mark. You've done a great job of, of pushing back and interrupting me. So I appreciate it. It has been an absolute blast <laughs> and I'll totally have you back on very soon. So thank you so much. Yeah, again. this is awesome. And in fairness, you told me to push back and interrupt. So I, I took Absolutely. you up on that, on that Absolutely. offer. But I do, I do appreciate the conversation. I could talk about this stuff all day, but um, you know, thanks for having me on. This is awesome. Absolutely. Bye guys.